Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. We did two weeks in the studio, and basically the vibe was uh, all the producers would, we, I lined up like eight or ten different uh, keyboards and bass, guitar, a mic for vocals, a mic for t a piano, like everything was live. So it was like 20 tracks of just stuff, and all the producers could just kind of jump on whatever they wanted to, and they would just create and vibe off, off different jams. And um, then Solange would come in and say, oh, okay, I like this, what you're doing. Let's loop that. Let's, you know, take this. And then a lot of times, um, I think Don't You Wait from the album, mm -hmm. from A Seat at the Table, uh, was created this way where I think we had gotten to that groove where they were just playing and she, this was like, we had been in the studio for a few hours and she walked in and just picked up the mic and basically just freestyled that, freestyled that. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Today's episode features a very special guest, Michaela Blue Spruce, aka Blue the Engineer the Grammy Award-winning engineer behind Solange Knoll's album, A Seat at the Table. In this episode, Blue talks about his career, the makings of A Seat at the Table, and how it felt to win his first Grammy Award. So without further ado, let me introduce you guys to Grammy Award-winning engineer, my friend, the silent giant, Michaela Blue Spruce. All right, Blue, welcome to the show, my man. What's good, man? Happy to be here, bro. Dude, happy to see you again. Happy to reunite. <laughs> yes, sir, It's man. been a long time. So happy to have you on the show, man. Awesome, Super blessed man. to have you. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to be here, bro. First, where are you from, brother? I grew up in Seattle. Um, I moved here when I was 18 to go to NYU. Okay. And so that's what brought me to New York, and I've been here basically ever since. And what was your experience like growing up in Seattle? Seattle was great. I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, Seattle is, it, it has its own vibe. It's like very West Coast to a certain degree, but uh, removed from the Cali scene because it's so far north. And so it definitely has its own like feel, you know, it's pretty rainy. So it's a little depressing that, you know, the whole Kurt Cobain suicide capital narrative is, is, is somewhat accurate. Um, but it definitely has its own scene. It always had its own music scene and, and has had a lot of contributions to the, to the music the musical world over the years, you know, Quincy Jones from Seattle, Jimi um, Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, my man, Jake one, who's a great producer, did stuff for, you know, uh, G unit, a lot of people like we have our, we have our mile. And then of course my man, Mac Lamore, who, who, you know, so makes a lot. So makes a lot. Yeah. Yo, 
pop, people think my posse's on Broadway is about Broadway in New York, but it's definitely not. It's about Broadway in Seattle. Really? Yeah. Broadway is the the strip where for years and years it was all, you know, Capitol Hills where all the clubs and little venues, party spots are at. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, man. My posse's on Broadway is about Seattle. You know what I think about when I think of Seattle? What's that? I think about Free Willy. <laughs> Wait, why? And there's a scene in Free Willy. Real talk. There's a scene in Free Willy where like Jesse's going through on his bike uh-huh. and like they're tossing fish in the fish yeah. market. Yeah. That's in Seattle. Yeah, definitely. Was Free Willy set in Seattle? Yeah. I the, do. The, remember, I do. Remember, remember, like the, remember the old head in Free Willy? Yeah. Like the old kind of like Native American guy? Yes. He had on Seattle Supersonics hat. Well, that's real. So that's that, real. I'm gonna have my, to rewatch Free Willy because I had no idea that it was yeah, in Seattle. My earliest memories of Seattle. Never been there, yeah. but I think of Free Willy. You know what's funny is that that's probably because I lived in Seattle, so it's just like, yeah, that's normal. They throw fish at every market, but right. that's only in Seattle. Uh, how did you first like get into music? My birth mom, she uh, was really into music. She always played soul and you know Motown, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, like all growing up. Um, I still remember when when Gangsta's Paradise came out by Coolio. It was like my favorite song instantly. When as soon as it came out, I was I loved that song and I and, and I played it for my mom. I, I might have been ten or twelve years old when it came out. And I'm like, Mom, you gotta listen to this new song. Like it's so awesome. And I play it for it. She's like, This is this is Stevie Wonder. Like what are you doing? I played this for you when you were when I was pregnant with you. Wow. So it's like something you know full, full circle. Super full circle. So something must have drawn me to that song and just that type of style in general. Like that, I loved Michael Jackson growing up. I had the bad tape in on deck in my little play school boombox everywhere I went. Eighty seven. Yep, eighty seven. Eighty seven. That was when he was born. 80, no, did yeah. it come out eighty? It was born eighty seven. It came out eighty seven. But it was like rocking in eighty eight. Yeah, maybe. I, think I thought it, it was eighty six, eighty seven. No, no, I think it came out 87, because I think the world tour was in 88. Oh, okay. You might be right. My dates get a little fuzzy. I, was on, I, was, I wasn't that old in that time period. I'm also like a humongous Michael Jackson nerd. <laughs> that's, that's good. Like, we on the same page. Have you seen Moonwalker? Of course. Okay. Uh, with Joe Pesci? Yeah, yeah of course. Come on, dog. Uh, good. I mean, there's people, there's people who swear they like Michael Jackson. They say, oh, you've seen Moonwalker, and they look at you crazy. No, nah, no. Nah, I had the video game, dog. Oh, I used to play that in the arcade. Yeah, that shit was real. There was a corner store by my house that had the arcade of Moonwalker. Back in the day, and I used to go in there just to play that. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember going to Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Actually, it wasn't even a Blockbuster; it was like a movie time. It was like a hood, <laughs> the hood blockbuster. blockbuster. Okay, like like no carpet on the floor. Gotcha. Type type spot. Gotcha. But they had um, uh, Moonwalker in there. Yeah. So I was like, "Yo, we gotta cop this joint." Mike, yeah. was, Mike was kicking ass, dog. I had the bootleg tape of Moonwalker f- that I had taped off of TV, like when they showed it on TV. Yeah. So like a black tape with a with a masking tape label with sharpie on it that said moonwalker and shit. i watched that shit a thousand times uh, yo much love to joe pesci yo <laughs> with this scene the super scary. dramatic scene with the gun in the end he was scary dog yeah nah it was it definitely that was a definitely a traumatic part of that movie my favorite part was when they did the uh the uh claymation video of smooth smooth criminal and michael jackson oh, dance battled the bunny version yes, of himself yes, in the desert yes fire no, I gotta rewatch that. Yo, Yo. We, okay, we gotta add that to the there list. There you go. That's part of the movie. We gotta, we gotta add that to the list. I swore that we got like four movies now. Yo, I, I told myself after MJ passed away that like every year on his birthday I would watch Moonwalker, but I have yet to do it. So maybe soon we could do that. We gotta find it. Like, where's it gonna be at though? Like, who I, I, I have. Is it maybe it on, on Amazon? I feel like I have it on a hard drive. I found it on like a torrent site years ago, and I was mad hyped, so I just downloaded it and kept it on the stash. But I have to find it. Damn torrent. Yeah, like like years. That I was think like it might, it might have been like LimeWire era, like 
Like, that was like back in like the downloading porn days. There you go. There <laughs> you go. Like Moonwalker and like Big Asses Six. <laughs> Booty talk I, found, number I, found, four. Yeah, I found it. <laughs> yes, sir. So um, they write in the same folder. Yeah. <laughs> it's like shit, honey. I found it. Uh, yes. Just ignore all the rest of the stuff in that folder. <laughs> and so, uh, so Blue, uh, did you always know? Like, what was your? Did you always know that you wanted to be involved in music? And how did you? Uh, first get introduced to it as far as you being involved just like making music um when i was really young i played the drums um and that was my first introduction into like being a musician i would say um it didn't last too long i mean i, I played for a few years and i really enjoyed it but once i got to like like late middle school early high school when if you were a drummer you had to like be in the jazz band and learn how to read music and all this and more advanced stuff i just was like nah, this is not this is not for me. I just like playing. My, my original drum teacher was very like funk and rock. Like he just taught me drum patterns. So I liked that part, but I didn't like reading music and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so after that, I became a DJ. So all throughout high school, I would DJ, do little like mixtapes in the crib, you know, real mixtapes where I had the turntables hooked up to a tape player and just recorded. Wow. You know, so you had to do it right once. Once. You know, and if you messed up, you had to weigh whether it was worth redoing again because you're like, I might mess up again. And it's not worth it. So you had to spend like an hour. And I never really did anything with the mixtapes. It was more just for me. Um, so it would be like, you know, this is like the raucous records, most deaf, Talib okay. Kweli era. So I would blend all of their records at Outkast or, you know, whatever was my favorite music at the time. And just kind of just to, to practice and stuff like that. And I did a few shows, local shows. That period was just me, you know, really diving into the the Seattle hip-hop scene, seeing like most deaf, the Roots, all of those guys, and then the local openers in Seattle all throughout high school. That was like my life. Did you ever have a desire to be on stage talent as far as like vocally or? No, never. I've never written a rap in my life. I've never, I've never written a song, a singing song. I never wanted to be a singer. And I, I think at that time period, I mean, I don't know if it was just because we were young or, or what, but it, it felt like you had to do something. So everybody was either like, you were either a rapper or you were a DJ or you were a break dancer or you were like an artist. Like you had to kind of, if you were into, into hip hop, you had to like have a role. And so that's why I was a DJ, because I felt like that was being behind the scenes, but still involved in the music was was my felt like my place. And so I think that's what really transitioned me into into engineering, because it's kind of, I don't want to say it's the same role, but it, it's 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 similar. There's a lot of similarities. So when did the transition happen from from DJ to engineer? Um, I was in NYU. I went to NYU. Uh, my major was music technology. Um and that was very engineering based, but I didn't really know kind of what engineering was at that time. Like it was before the era of everybody having Pro Tools in their house or it was before GarageBand and all that. So it was like if you wanted to make songs, you had to go to a studio. Okay. Um, I started college. I mean, I'm not that old. I started college in 2002, but it's still it was before the time where you could sit here and record a podcast with a tiny little recorder. Like it right. doesn't it. It didn't, it didn't work like that. So I didn't really know much about engineering. And I uh, started working with an artist. I thought I wanted to be a producer. So okay. I, I thought I wanted to make beats. And I got reason. And I was, like, trying to make beats. And my first beat sucked. But that's kind of everybody who makes beats. It was Yeah. So it wasn't just because, like, you know, everybody's, when they start, is not good. So that's not what discouraged me. Just kind of, like, when I would come home and try to sit down to make beats, I just didn't have the kind of... I didn't have the drive to sit there and make beats all day. Uh, but I started working with an artist who was a, he was from Seattle and he had moved out to New York actually. And he was a producer and rapper. 
And so he made his own beats and he rapped and, you know, kind of like naturally just fell into that engineering role. He needed somebody to record him and kind of clean up his music and get it ready for the world. So like through that and then the fact that my that my program at NYU was very based, was mostly based on uh, on engineering, it kind of just fell in line. And I, I found a, a really big passion for for this side of it, you know, the tech, because my mind is very technical and also, but it's still a lot of room to be creative. At what point at, at NYU did it kind of hit you like you know what I'm going to go into this engineering thing was like your freshman year sophomore year well my freshman year I wasn't I actually like finagled my way into the engineering program because in order to audition for the engineering program you had to like play an instrument and I didn't I wasn't good enough to play the I didn't feel like I was good enough at playing the drums to like audition with the drums so I just started NYU as like a regular you know undecided student and then I just kind of like went to the office and asked them and you know just tried to figure out my way in there so I didn't get into the engineering program until my sophomore year okay. and I would say pretty much that year nobody really socially saw me after that I have friends who I used to hang out with really heavy freshman year that like they they'll tell you like yo after sophomore year I didn't see him ever wow because I was just in the studio I would stay in the in the NYU studios they used to let my boy worked there he worked as like you know he would rent the gear out to people and so they would let him book overnight time. So they would basically, they locked the building at like 7 p.m. And they would unlock it at 7 in the morning. Okay. So they would let us book time overnight, but we had to stay there all night. We couldn't leave because the door was locked. So we would just book and he would bring his boys to record and we would just record music and mix all night. We had an SSL board. So we're like kids in a candy store. What, what was it like, uh, the transition coming from Seattle uh, to New York as far as like yeah, getting used to the, the speed of the city? Was it a big learning curve for you? I think I always wanted to be here. I mean, like, growing up, I listened to, you know, Nas, Jay. Like, I always kind of was was really enthralled by the energy of New York. And so being in a village, to me, was like a dream come true. You know, I've been in NYU. I'm in West Forth. Like, that's there's record stores. There's cool stuff going on. Like, Seattle's a big city, but it's, you know, you drive everywhere. So in New York, you can come and you walk around. Like, you see things all, you know. So I think right away, I, I, I took to it pretty pretty easily. It wasn't... It definitely was an adjustment, but I feel like I was really just ready to be here. So I think it was just, it, 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 it happened pretty naturally. Uh, what was your, um, <clears throat> excuse me, what was your introduction into getting into the music industry? Um, or like your first kind of like industry job? Well, I mean, I've, I have a studio right around the corner, you know, as you know, right on 39th Street. Um, Lounge Studios is my home. I've been there basically since I graduated college. I graduated college in 2006 and started working there like two months after that. That was like my first, I don't want to say my first job. I had gotten paid as an engineer before that, but it was always like I would go to like some hood studio in the Bronx and like work at okay. nighttime and mix their records. Because I was good enough to kind of like get a little money, charge people like, $20 an hour or something like that, but didn't have a regular place to work. Okay. So I would say starting at Lounge was my first real like home base and place to work out of. And at that time, we really didn't have a lot of industry clients. We had a few, um, but it built up over the years just because of the quality of the studio. And then, of course, uh, I was trying to do my thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so also, uh, what was the first artist that you recorded where you were like, wow, like this, this is... <laughs> This is happening right now. Um, the first person I had to say was Slim from 112. And it sounds it sounds random because even at the time he was like, I would say like past his heyday. Yeah. Um, but he was a real cool dude. It was like a guy who I had worked with, got him for a feature. 
So he recorded the hook, and that was my first like session where I remember being like, oh, this is a famous person that's in the studio that's like right here. Somebody that I saw in videos when I was young right here standing in the studio, and I'm recording him, and I'm like the guy. I remember he had during the studio session, that's how you knew it was like an industry thing. It was different than a normal session because he had like a fitting for some photo shoot. And so like we only have really one space in the studio. There's a control room and there's a live room, but there's big windows. So it's like you can't close the window. Like you, you can see. So he put like a big sheet so he could change his clothes in the studio because he didn't want to like go into the bathroom right. to do it. So it was just, that was like, but to me, it felt like a very industry moment. You, like, you, dog, this dude gets a sheet. Yeah. Like, well, just like, <laughs> he don't oh, even he's, go in the he's, bathroom. He's having a fitting. Like he's doing, <laughs> somebody's giving him a bunch of clothes to try on. And then he picks them. And then he, and of course, in my mind, he was getting them for free. I don't know if he was or not, but. It's just like this, like very industry. It felt very industry. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I did. I can't even lie. That that was my first time being in that type of environment working. But I mean, I'm skipping my whole. I, I interned at Baseline as well. So. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, that was like my real... In- Jay-Z's... Yeah. And- well, it was, it was right after Jay-Z sold it to Just Blaze. Okay. Um, and so I was there for about two or three months. I was like the unofficial intern runner for Guru. I only liked to be there when Guru was there. I was like a kind of a snobby intern. I can't even lie. I was like, I don't want to be here with anybody. I just want to study under Guru because he's the man. Um, and so I, I got to see, you know, Meth Bleak record and a couple of things like that. So that was, but that was me as an intern just sitting there watching. Was there anything that you learned from, from watching Guru? Um, it was tough, man. It was like he was he had just got the A and R position at Def Jam and he would come to the studio seven, eight o'clock and then pretty much just work and then fall asleep on the studio couch. So I didn't really get to talk to him much. I just got to watch him. And it wasn't watching him like right up on his side. It was like watching him from the back studio couch. Yeah. Cause you know, you gotta be a fly on the wall. When you're in the studio and you're an intern, you have to disappear right especially in the creative process like man you can't get in the way right because any, anything you do wrong somebody's like who the fuck is this guy why is he in my session get him the fuck out of here right um so i try not to make waves I, you know i just really it was just more of his approach to like watching him work and watching how he put things together sonically because i you know he was working on an ssl board so from far away i can't see like what eq he's you know i could see okay he's brightening the vocals he's adding this delay reverb but i couldn't see any of the settings so it's not really like direct techniques i could take but it was just more of an overall like sonic of this is how he puts together a song did you have a mentor as an engineer or someone that kind of took you under their wing and or you kind of modeled yourself kind of a little bit after the way they moved or like some of their techniques 
I think, I mean, I would say the the only person that I would consider a mentor is my my boy who I don't, I'm, actually we lost touch. I, I would love to get back in touch with him. My, my boy, his name was uh, Ted. We went to college together and he taught me how to use Pro Tools. So he was like the first person to say, okay, yo, this is how you record in Pro Tools. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. But uh, after college, we kind of, you know, we kind of lost touch. He actually, he had a, uh, he recorded 50 Cent, I Get Money. That wow. was his like, well, I don't know. Hopefully he has. maybe he's been done something since but that was his big like big moment of doing a big record it was dope man that was probably my only really mentor but I didn't have like a lot of engineers they sit under a big engineer for years and years and don't really get their kind of own they don't get their own shine until years later and I didn't really have that period I kind of like I was 22 and I started being the head engineer at a studio and so like I kind of skipped that phase and then just I built up the studio as I built myself up. Right. Kind of. It's also interesting too, I feel like that the engineers that I know is because rappers shout them out. Like yeah. I, I didn't know that gu- who Guru was until nah. Jay-Z shouted Guru out. Yeah. Or Bob Power. Yeah, uh, true, true. You know, because yeah. Q-Tip, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, I feel like rappers really like shout out. Nah, that's, that's real talk because you don't like, the Rolling Stones aren't shouting out their engineer. Right. Well, all of the, and when you look at old sessions, like especially old rock sessions, the engineer always just looks like, I mean, really, even in rap stuff, it's just now getting to where engineers are kind of like stylish guys. But like the engineer, when you see a picture of the studio, the engineer is always like the lamest guy in the dude, picture. Moppy. <laughs> he got the, he got the ponytail. Dude. Or like the, <laughs> the faded t-shirt, bro. Like it's all, you always can, you can look at any picture and be like, that's yeah, the engineer. that's the engineer. Right, right away. Engineer. And so that's, I mean, I try to change that. Hopefully I try to add my little flair and you're aesthetic good. to good, my. <laughs> you good, And so I, I want to get into, uh, into Solange's album. Okay, yeah. Uh, so uh, how did you first uh, meet Solange? How did that opportunity like come about? I know you worked with her for, for years now. Yeah, it's um, been a while. Just, I, I had to think about it the other day, like eight eight years, I think. It, we started working together in 2000, no, nine years. We started working together in 2008. So the first thing I ever did with her, she came to lounge to my studio um, during an EMI session. She was at the time signed to EMI as a writer. Um, you know, she wrote a she wrote a, a few records for for her sister. Right, for Beyonce, yeah. Um, and you know, got a got a publishing deal, but she, I don't think she ever really wanted to be a songwriter for other people. The songs that she wrote for her sister, I think, were just songs she wanted to write, and it happened that they landed on her sister's album. I don't think it was this thing of like, I'm gonna be a songwriter. Right. So when she came in for her EMI session, we had a, we had, did a lot of songwriting sessions for EMI at the time, and. Um, she came in and was like, yeah, they want me to write songs, but I think I'm going to do this cover version of a song that I really like. So it was a song called Stillness is the Move by the Dirty Projectors. Uh, shout out to my man, Dave Longstreth. He, it was him and uh, two, two female singers were the group, and they were an indie kind of band from Brooklyn. Very like left, left field, you know, weird kind of vibes, but dope music. Um, and... She did a R&B version of their basically biggest song at the time, um, and she did it over the, depending on how old you are, it's either the Bag Lady beat by Erica Badu or the Explosive beat by Dr. Dre. Same, okay. same, same beat. Yeah. The same exact beat. <laughs> so depending on what area you grew up in, you're explosive. So I can't remember, but either way, we flipped it, we changed the key, and she sung that song in a very like lush R&B harmonies, like super dope. If you ever look it up, it's dope. Um, and so that was the first thing we ever did together. She recorded it with me, and then we mixed it, and it ended up getting 
on the 2009 Time Magazine Songs of the Year. So the reason I know, the reason I say it did because the Time Magazine list listed the original with the cover as the as the number whatever seven song of the year. Okay. So it wasn't just the original. So I know that Solange's version helped it. You know, helped help blow it up past that. Um, so that was the first thing we ever did together. And then uh, soon after that, she moved to New York and uh, started working on the True EP, which uh, which we did together in my studio and Loud Studios. Uh, and the rest is kind of history. And so, I, how does the process work uh, with the seat, uh, with the table? Was it a um, was it like a collection of songs you guys kind of had already, like working that became an album? Or was it like you know what? Let me call it Blue. We're gonna do an album. Like, what was the process it was, like making it? It was kind of like that. Um, she has another recording engineer that who lives in Houston. My man Nino, who she worked with uh, before me, who she worked with during her whole like Hadley Street and Soul Angel like. Um, he was working for, was it Music World, uh, Matthew Knowles' company? Yeah. Um, so she was very close with him. So it was basically me and, when she started A Seat at the Table, it was, uh, what, True came out in 2012. 12, seat yeah. at the t- Table, she started working right in 2013. She basically started right away. And um, her whole thing for that album was she wanted to go places and create. Um, so the first session was actually, I wasn't there, it was Nino, um, which if you, there's a great behind the scenes video of her creating uh, Don't Touch My Hair. So it was uh, her, Nino, Sanfa, a few other producers and, and, and musicians and stuff in the, in the room, and they were writing Don't Touch My Hair. And that was in the summer of 2013. And then uh, I started, she, she uh, booked me to go down to New Orleans in like October of that year, and we did two weeks in this huge church uh, in New Orleans, because by that time she had moved to New Orleans. Um, and we booked, she booked this studio, which was in a church, a church that was destroyed in Katrina, um, and then somebody bought it and turned it into a studio. So the live room of the studio was the church main hall. Huge, beautiful church organ, and then, you know, some of the best acoustics in the world are in churches. Um, better than, you know, better, a lot of times better than performance halls, churches have great acoustics, historically, even like going back in, in history. Um, and so the acoustics were great. So basically, on that trip, it was me as engineer. We had Dave Longstreth, who I mentioned earlier from Dirty Projectors. Samfo was there, who at this time, now everybody knows him. But right. back then, he was, you know, just just starting out doing his thing. But super dope, you know. That guy, his voice, like everything. Unbelievable. Come, everything that comes out of his mouth, I say, like, is like his voice is just amazing. He can sing anything, and it sounds great. Um, so it was him, Samfo, my man Quest, who's a British... Uh, British producer and artist, um, and then Adam Bainbridge, who goes by Kindness. Okay. Um, a producer named Benga, and who else was there? It was I think that was everybody. Please don't let me forget anybody. Um, but yeah, we did two weeks in this studio, and basically the vibe was uh, all the producers would we I lined up like eight or ten different uh, keyboards and bass, guitar, a mic for vocals, a mic for a piano, like everything was live. So it was like 20 tracks of just stuff and all the producer could just kind of jump on whatever they wanted to and they would just create and vibe off off different jams. And um, then Solange would come in and say, okay, I like this, what you're doing. Let's loop that. Let's, you know, take this. And then a lot of times, um, I think, don't you wait from the album, mm-hmm. from a seat at the table, uh, was created this way where I think we had gotten to that groove where they were just playing and she, this was like, we had been in the studio for a few hours and she walked in and just picked up the mic and basically just freestyled that. 
like basically just sang that whole melody, sang pretty much every part of that song. I don't think there was anything that's in the song that wasn't initially recorded just in a in a mumble take. A lot of times she'll mumble a lot of the words, but it's the main idea of the song. I mean, you're right. a, you're a writer, right. so you already know. Of course, you mu- you know you mumble until then you get the words. I, and so so the entire process of making uh, Seat at the Table was two years. Uh, more than that, it started in 2013. So that until it came out was three three years and like three years and change. And then um, if you include, so I wasn't there for this part either. Um, Cranes in the Sky was written in 2009, so about eight years ago. At this time, maybe a seven and change from when the album came out. And uh, what's funny about that record is she did it. Uh, Rafael Sadiq did the main elements of the, the most the majority of the production i would say he did the the drums the bass it, basically what it was it was a track with drums bass and the strings that you hear in the song the synth strings okay and she had that kind of on tuck the whole time we were working on what came to be a seat at the table but didn't ever quite know if she was going to use it which is funny because it became you know the the most you know the most uh, celebrated song on the album and a lot of people's favorites Tried to put one in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hand. Um, and I always loved it whenever she would play it. I'd be like, Yo, I hope she puts this on the album. It's so dope. Yeah. Um, and it basically, again, it was one of those where I and I even pulled up the files recently to to see what the first mumble track was. And it's basically the whole song. There's an additional part that she ended up editing out. Um, but it's basically the whole song. She wrote it in 2009 and just kind of had it in her back pocket. Wow. Um, so I would say the majority of everything happened in those three years. But then Seat at the Table predates basically everything else on the album. And so uh, you won a Grammy. Yeah. Oh, Cranes in the Sky. I'm sorry. Cranes in the Sky predates everything. I think I said that wrong. Anyway, yes, go ahead. But you won a Grammy. Yes, sir. And so where were you uh, when you won your first Grammy? Um, so I was in the studio, man. Um, it's, it, I was working on uh, an album. Uh, you, were in, you were in the studio yeah. when you won <laughs> your first Grammy. Yeah, man. It's weird. When you, when you, so when the song, you know, you work on a song that gets nominated for a Grammy, there's no like, you think, you know, you think that this like care package gets dropped down from the sky, like, and then you get <laughs> tickets and all that. But like, no, you have to actually have connections in the Grammy Association to get tickets. And like, now I'm a voting member of the Grammys. After that, uh oh, uh oh, shout out, so subtle I can, flex. I might, I might be, you know, I might be able to vote <laughs> somebody in there. So you know, well, be nice. Well, you can vote for your own shit. Yeah, there you go. There, there you go. go. I definitely will be doing that <laughs> if it ends up. We don't get to. So the voting members don't choose what's on the ballots, but we can definitely choose. You know, we can definitely vote. So I'm in there. Wait, so you can vote for yourself? Yeah, definitely. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So you just have to, and this is to anybody who does work on music, it's relatively easy to become a voting member of the Grammys. You have to have, I think it's six, no, 12 credited songs, like on Discogs or All Music. Okay. So any like commercial releases that then get uh, picked up by Discogs or All Music, if you've, and when I say 12, it doesn't mean 12 albums, it's 12 songs. Okay. So, you know, Solange's album, by itself fulfills that requirement and anything else I've done over the years. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, if you have music that's out there, you know, definitely sign up, man. We gotta have we gotta have accurate representation by there, by us creatives in the, in the in the voting field. There we go. There we go. I agree. Um, but yeah, so I was in the studio when I found out, um, and it's funny because I knew that this, the 
there's only certain categories that get announced on TV. It's really only like six or eight categories that get announced. We think that there's like a bunch of them, but it's really the whole Grammys is performances and there's like eight, right. eight winners. Right. So the rest of the whatever, like 70 categories that there are get announced in a pre-ceremony. So I knew that they were going to announce it before the ceremony. I knew I had to work. So I told my, my wife, I was like, don't, you know, don't tell me, don't tell me ahead of time because I want to wait for the, because, you know, during the ceremony, they're like, Flash like er, earlier tonight this person won and this person won so I wanted to have that moment of like seeing it um and so I told her don't tell me but then like I kind of like oh yeah you got, you got too many goons in these streets man. well it got it got close to that time and she called me and she you know she she let me know that 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 uh we had won and she was like you know just I didn't want some you know because right after that my phone just blew up she was like I know people are gonna call you and tell you and I want to be at least the one to tell you that you won so it was dope. It was a super, you know, humbling and awesome moment, man. We went after that. I stopped working about an hour after that. Went home and you know, we chilled and you know had some drinks and watched the ceremony and stuff like that. So it was a really great moment. I wasn't able to be there this year. Uh, wasn't I didn't jump on getting tickets early enough. But hopefully next year I'll get in there. What would your, your mom say? Oh, she was man. She was super proud of me uh, and just it's kind of an amazing thing. Like when you start in this music thing, you don't ever think. I mean, you want to get that big. You want to get to a point where, like, oh, yo, I, I worked on this song, you know, that 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 won a Grammy. Like, you want to get that big, but you don't ever think that it's really possible. And so when it happens, it's like, yo, I really, I really did it. Like, that's a huge milestone to me. Anybody who, you know, we can hate on the Grammys all we want, but anybody as a musician still wants one. Man. Grammy Award winning <laughs> Blue, there the engineer. Dude, you thank go. you so much for coming on the show. Thank I love you, you man. Bro. Best of luck. Oh, man, it's a pleasure, bro. It's great to, great to see you doing the thing, man. This is a, a, a dope, uh, dope series, man. I'm happy to be a part of it. Thank you so much to Blue the Engineer for stopping by the show today. Special thanks to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. Mixing engineer Jay Goodman, photographer Kayla Kahlberg, and theme music produced by Richard Mallory. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time.